0: And we've noticed that Ezekiel has seen a vision of the sins that are going on in the city of Jerusalem and even more staggering in the temple complex where uh, Ezekiel has seen the religious leaders worshiping graven images, they're worshiping idols, they're weeping for idols, they have their back to the temple. Uh, A a truly staggering image of how uh, far the people have gone away from God. And so much so that we are observing a visual where the glory of God has uh, begun to lift out of that temple complex instead of being in the holy of holies it's moved out from the ark of the covenant has moved to the threshold and then moved to the gates of the temple making his way out of that temple and is, is going to show this picture of him leaving his people and leaving uh, jerusalem and remember last week what we observed is that when sin stays god leaves and that's the The big problem is the people are not choosing God. They're not choosing to listen to the Lord. Instead, they're they're keeping their idols. They're rejecting God's messengers. And so the glory of the Lord is ultimately leaving. And so now that this this evening, we're going to look at the other side of the coin, which is so when does God stay? And I'd like to pose this in a little bit of a of a different way as well. Uh, Ezekiel has reminded the people and as is proclaimed throughout the promises that were made to David and also to Solomon that God was going to dwell with his people forever and that his name would stay at this place and so sometimes I think it's easy to miss that there is always this big hanging question that Israel and the prophets would have had which is If God sends his people off the land and into captivity, then how is God going to keep his promise? How is God's name going to dwell forever with his people and in the land? How is the, the temple going to be the place where God's name would forever dwell and all people would be, would come to that place and understand that? And that's one of the things that Ezekiel is going to grapple with that we're going to see in Ezekiel chapter 11 is he's trying to figure out in a lot of ways. Well, God, what are you doing as he's watching the glory of God leave? And then God, how is God going to solve that problem now? As we go through this, I want you to also keep another ear for for one other thing, another lens, which is this, is that when he starts talking about what God is going to do, I'm going to submit to you that he's not talking about anybody except what he's going to be talking about in the future, the future people of God. So keep that in mind as we go through this, that this chapter is far more about us Than actually, what we might uh, give it credit for. So Ezekiel chapter eleven, Ezekiel chapter eleven. Uh, the, the first couple of verses reminds us that Ezekiel is in vision. Verse 1, the Spirit, the Spirit lifted me up and brought me to the east gate of the house of the Lord, which faces east. Remember, Ezekiel's in Babylon. So when you see him in Jerusalem, he's not actually in Jerusalem. He's in a vision. You have, the, the, have God moving him through this vision, and he is observing the things that are happening there in Jerusalem in particular. Uh, at the temple and what these leaders and people are doing in terms of worship. Uh, We're told there in verse 1 that there are 25 men there. Among them are these other officials. And I want you to notice what it says there in verse 2. He said to me, Mortal, these are the men who devise iniquity and who give wicked counsel in this city. They say... The time is not near to build houses. This city is the pot and we are the meat. Now that is a strange sounding proverb. You have the people of Jerusalem running around saying, uh, the city is the pot and we are the meat. On the surface that would sound bad. I don't know that I would want to be the meat in a pot that doesn't sound like that would be a positive experience, but they're using that in a positive way. They are saying this in a sense to say that we are the spiritual good stuff, the the dross, the 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 bad parts of the animal. They've all been dragged off to Babylon, but we're the meat. We're the good stuff, and. We're in the pot and and God is protecting us in this pot because we're so good and we're so righteous and we're so much better than those who have gone to Babylon. In fact, I think that they're essentially getting at this idea that the exiled are sinners when Aaron says in verse three, the time is not near to build houses. Remember, the message to the exiles was build houses. You're going to be there a long time. Well, we're in Jerusalem here and we're the good stuff and we're the spiritually righteous and they're the bad ones. So we don't have to worry about building houses. We're going to be just fine. And God's taking care of us because we're the meat and we're protected by the pot and we're the good stuff. So that's what the proverb is. that's going on in Jerusalem that they think that they have averted disaster and that everybody else who has been captured, they must have been the sinners. But we're the righteous. Which, you know, good thing we don't do things like that in our mind, right? You know, and other people go through judgment. Oh, well, they were the bad ones. But thankfully, that's not me. Whew, you know, I'm, that's what they're doing. They're saying, well, the reason why they're going through bad times is they're horrible sinners. But we're so righteous. We're the spiritual good stuff. So we're immune from all these things that are happening. I want you to notice what God says. In verse 4, he says to prophesy against them. In verse 5, it says, The Spirit of the Lord fell on me and said to me, Say, thus says the Lord, This is what you think, O house of Israel. I know the things that come into your mind. Before I just get into what he says to them, I just want you to notice, here's a prophecy where God says, you know, I know what you're thinking, right? <laughs> uh, here they are going around. Oh, yeah, we're 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 great. We're 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 spiritually excellent, you know. And those people over there are so bad. And God goes, you know, I know your heart. I know your motives. I know what you're thinking. I know what's going through your mind. And so he's giving them a reminder here about understand that God knows your thoughts. God knows what you're thinking about these things. God knows our arrogance. God knows what's moving inside of us. And he now writes these words and says, not only do I know what you're thinking, but you'll notice in verse six, it says, you've killed many in the city and have filled the streets with the slain. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, the slain whom you have placed within it are the meat, and This city is the pot but you shall be taken out of it. You have feared swords. I will bring the sword upon you, says the Lord God. I will take it out of, of it and give, excuse me, I will take you out of it and give you over to the hand of the foreigners and execute judgments upon you. You shall fall by the sword, and I will judge you at the border of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord this city shall not be your pot and you shall not be the meat inside it. I will judge you at the border of Israel and then you will know that I am the Lord whose statutes you have not followed and whose ordinances you have not kept, but you have acted according to the ordinances of the nations that are around you. What an interesting thing. He says, you want to say that you're protected, you're the meat in the pot. Guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to take you out of the pot then. He says, I'm going to take you out of the city and I'm going to execute my judgments, essentially warning them there was going to be a third invasion that the Babylonians were going to do. The the Babylonians were not done with Judah and done with these people. Another invasion was going to come and they were going to suffer by sword. And so he's telling them. Just because you've averted this crisis up to this point doesn't mean you're not wicked. doesn't mean you're not worthy of judgment. And so the sword is going to come upon you. But I want you to notice what he describes as the big problem there in verse 12. Yes, he's talking about the violence that is going on in the city. But notice verse 12. He sums it up like this. And he says, you have kept the ordinances of the nations around you. You have Kept the standards and conform to those standards of the nations around you rather than conforming to the standards that God gave. I won't do it, but you could just make the whole sermon go right there about big warning, about conforming to the moral standards of our society. Big warning here, God says. You follow my laws, my standards. You conform to my ordinances. You don't conform to the nation's standards. You don't conform to the culture standards. You don't conform to their way of thinking. That picture that the Apostle Paul gives in Romans 12 and verse 2. Don't be conformed to this word, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Can be traced all the way back here as a judgment on Israel. Why is Israel being judged? Because you're acting like the world. You've conformed to the standards. You've adopted the practices. You're thinking the exact same way. And so the people of God cannot do that. And so the big warning here, and to emphasize the seriousness of this. Notice verse 13. Now, while I was prophesying, Pelatiah the son of Beniah died. And I fell down on my face and cried with a loud voice and said, Ah, oh, Lord God. Will you make a full end of the remnant of Israel? There is a visual that God uses, the severity of God's judgment that's coming against the nation. And here, one of the leaders that was named back in verse one just suddenly dies. And Ezekiel takes that as a message that nobody's gonna survive this. Are you going to make a full end to the remnant? Is there not gonna be anybody left because everybody's worthy of judgment? You could hear the idea of Romans 3 flooding through this moment. There's no one righteous. Everyone's deserving wrath. They've all fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone has sinned. And so if we're all going to stand before God and be accountable for these sins, then God, are you going to make a full end of the remnant? Is there going to be anybody left? That's the big question that Ezekiel has. Which is an important question because God had made promises about this nation, made promises about the people. And yet it appears at this moment in Ezekiel's eyes that no one's getting out of this judgment. And so I want us to notice then what God says he's going to do. And this becomes the answer of how God stays with his people. Verse 14. Then the word of the Lord came to me, mortal your kinsfolk, your own kin, your fellow exiles, the whole house of Israel, all of them are those of whom the inhabitants of Jerusalem have said they have gone far from the Lord to us. This land is given for a possession. I want you to notice something that he shows them a little bit more. And he says, you know what they're saying over there about all of us? You are the ones who've gone far from God. You are the ones who've strayed away. And we're, again, that good stuff. To us, the the promises have been given. To us, God is possessing us as his people. Notice God's answer then, verse 16. Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, though I removed them far away among the nations, and though I scattered them among the countries, Yet I have been a sanctuary to them for a little while in the countries where they have gone. That's a really neat picture. Here are the people who have been taken off of the land and are suffering in exile and here they are, far, what seems to be far from God and seem to be dealing with the consequences of their sins. And the people back in Jerusalem are kind of doing a na 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 nah. You know, you guys are the ones far from God and we've got the possession and we're the good stuff. And I want you to notice that God comes along and says, actually, I'm a sanctuary for the people in exile and not for you in Jerusalem. I'm actually protecting them. I'm actually with them. I'm a temple to them. I'm their refuge, not Jerusalem, but to the people who went in exile. And friends, please never fall into the trap of Job's friends. Suffering doesn't mean you're far from God. We often draw that false conclusion. Well, here's the people in Jerusalem. We survived. God must love us. People who have gone far away. God must be doing something to them and punishing them. And here's God going, no, no, no. Actually, you're not far from God, even though you've been taken into exile, even though you're going through these circumstances, I am a sanctuary for you. I am actually with these people. And suffering doesn't mean that God cannot be a sanctuary to you in your life, that God cannot be with you in those circumstances and have you there in that moment, not only to teach us, but to carry us through. He's going to use these people as an important remnant. He's done this with a purpose. And so he says, I'm actually with them. But notice what God says he's he's going to do. We've got a list of amazing pictures now that he gives. Verse 17. Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. First restoration picture. God says, I'm going to bring them back. Even though they are scattered because of their sins, even though they are worthy of God's wrath and worthy of a judgment, God says, I'm actually going to call them back. I'm going to gather them all from all over the nations, wherever they've gone. I'm going to bring them all back. And notice that there's an outcome that's expected in verse 18 when it says, and when they come there, they will remove from it all the detestable things and all its abominations. When the people are called back to God in this great restoration call, The people will return and they're going to remove the detestable things. They're going to purge the idols. They're not going to follow those false things anymore. Instead, they're going to be devoted to God. And notice he it's where he goes in verse 19. He says, I will give them one heart and put a new spirit within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh so that they may follow my statutes and keep my ordinances and obey them. Then they shall be my people and I will be their God. Beautiful pictures. I'm going to call them back. They're going to purge their idols. And then he says, I'm going to give them one heart. Now think about how the New Testament talks about that singular devotion. Of what God's people will be, that they would not be double minded or tossed to and fro by the waves, that they would be so devoted to God. This is what is being pictured here. Is- I'm going to have a people that are not double minded, that are not torn between God and the world and not having a divided heart in that way. Instead, it's going to be a singular devotion, a single heart that seeks the Lord for all that it's worth. And then 30 says in verse 19, he says, I'm going to give them a new spirit. This idea of being transformed inside out, this whole new way of life is going to just pour out of them there's a transforming that's going to occur in their hearts and in their lives that they're not going to be a people who just obey externally but they're truly going to have a spirit that serves the Lord and seek him with all of his heart in fact you know you notice the picture also in verse 19 when he says That they're not going to have the heart of stone anymore, but instead they're going to have a heart of flesh. When you read that, please think of it like this, that rather than having stubborn hearts, my people are going to listen and change. They're going to hear what God says and change. It's going to infiltrate their ears and their hearts and sink down in them because they have this new heart and new spirit so that when they learn what they need to do, they're not going to resist God's will, but rather they are going to seek to do God's will. Or to say it another way, they're going to be teachable. They're just going to be a teachable people. You know, you've had the prophets running around proclaiming judgment and they're just going, well, we don't we don't care. And he goes, guess what? My people are not going to be that way. My people are going to listen and they'll have hearts that will want to change. They will have hearts that will want to listen and do what God says. And then finally, he said there in verse 20, it's going to restore the relationship. Verse 20, they're going to follow my statutes and keep my ordinances and obey them. Then they shall be my people and I will be their God. This is the the motivation for obedience. He doesn't just say, and everybody needs to just do what I say. But because of what God does to bring his people back and to put a new heart within them and give them this new spirit. The picture is they're going to want to obey. They're going to seek to obey God, which is going to put that relationship back together so that God can say, you're my people and I'm your God. So you have this great picture of how God is going to do this great work of having a different people so that with this new heart and new spirit, they're not going to look at God as an obligation or look at rules as something that has to be done, but a restoration of relationship. I mean... Picture it like this. Why does forgiveness of sins matter? And we talk a lot about we need to be forgiven. The importance of forgiveness of sins need to be forgiven. But why is that so important? Understand that forgiveness is about restoring a broken relationship. That's the whole idea of what forgiveness is trying to visualize within us, that there is a fracture in the relationship and you want that to come back. You want that thing restored. You know, imagine if I, this was this isn't hard to imagine, but if I do something dumb and my wife gets really mad at me and so, so she, because I do something dumb on a daily basis. And you know, she's she. I, you, you know how it is where you get the chill in the room and you realize you didn't know you did something. But now you understand you did something. Why do you want forgiveness? You can want it for bad reasons and you can want it for good reasons. And, and the good reason is, well, I want what was lost. I don't want there to be the separation. I don't want there to be the fracture. I don't want there to be the cold shoulder. I don't want to see the person's back. I want it to be restored to what it was. I don't want that coolness. That's what forgiveness is all about. And this is what's being pictured here is God saying, at the end of all of this, of what I'm going to do, I will be your God. And you will be my people. This is why we seek forgiveness. It's not just a fear of hell, sure. But it's because there's a separation that needs to be dealt with. And we want to be close to God and be in relationship with him. We want this new heart. We want this new spirit. And so here is God making this amazing promise and saying, I'm going to have a people that are going to do that. I'm going to do something so radical so that when I call my people to me, they're going to throw their idols in the trash and they're going to have new hearts and new spirits and they're going to seek me and I'm going to be their God and they're going to be my people. That's the promise that's set here. But before he goes on, there's a warning. Verse 21. But... As for those whose heart go after the detestable things and their abominations, I'll bring their deeds upon their own heads, says the Lord God. Warning, if God does this work and the heart still goes after idols, then there's only one outcome. There must be a judgment then. So here is God in forgiveness and grace saying, I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to give you restoration opportunity. But even after I do all that, if you still want your idols and your detestable things. then he just simply says in verse 21, "I'll, I'll let your deeds be on your own heads. You're going to reap what you sow. You're going to be allowed to bear the consequences of that decision. And so God says that's what he is ultimately going to do for the people. Now, notice the visual to confirm this idea. Look at verse 22 and just visualize this. Then the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel was above them. And the glory of the Lord ascended from the middle of the city and stopped on the mountain east of the city. And the Spirit lifted me up and brought me in a vision by the Spirit of God into Chaldea to the exiles. And the vision that I had seen left me, and I told the exiles all the things that the Lord had shown me. Notice that final picture. The glory of the Lord finally leaves the temple, finally leaves the city, and moves east. To the mountain. Now, knowing your geography, you know the mountain that's east. You read about it in the New Testament all the time, the Mount of Olives. That's right there. You cross the Kidron Valley, go up to the mountain right across from there. And here is this picture of the glory of the Lord leaving that Temple Mount, crossing over the Kidron Valley, and sitting and resting there over on that place, over on the Mount of Olives. And as I mentioned to you, we don't see this fulfilled. When Zerubbabel and Nehemiah and Ezra bring about the people, we we've recently studied them over the last couple of years, and you don't read like, and then they all threw away their idols, and everybody served God with a single heart and a single mind, and it was a great restoration. No, we have prophets like Haggai going, what are you doing? Build the temple. What's going on around there? Malachi comes along. Your worship is terrible. Close the doors. God can't take it anymore. We don't see this kind of restoration. It was pointing to something that was going to be accomplished in Christ. In fact, Christ reenacts this whole scene. I want to show it to you because we know the scriptures talk about Christ as the glory of the Lord. In Matthew chapter 23, I want you to watch what happens toward the end of Jesus' life here. And he's at the temple. And here he makes this plea. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. And you were not willing. Notice here's here's God saying, I was trying to bring you back. I was trying to restore you. I was trying to bring this relationship back. You're like these little chicks running far away and a hen is trying to get them to come back in. I tried to do that, but you wouldn't. You refused. Notice the next breath. Your house is left to you desolate. What house? God's house. He's standing at the temple and saying, I tried to bring you back. But your house is empty. The visual of the glory of the Lord. God is not here. And I want you, even though there's this big chapter break in the way, notice the next thing that happens is Matthew 24 and verse one. Jesus leaves the temple. And as Jesus leaves the temple, he makes a proclamation in verse two. See all these things, not One stone will be left upon another that's not thrown down. And then what it says, so it says there in verse one that Jesus left the temple. Where'd he go? Verse three. He sat on the Mount of Olives. He reenacts the whole Ezekiel sequence as the glory of the Lord. Here is this picture of God saying, I can't be with this people. The glory of the Lord lifts up from the temple. It moves across the valley that rests on the mountain to the east, the Mount of Olives. And the whole imagery is you're worthy of judgment. Judgment has come. In Matthew 23, the whole chapter is Jesus pronouncing woes. Woe to the leaders. Woe upon Jerusalem. Woe upon woe upon woe. Concludes it by saying, I was trying to bring you in. Your house is desolate. Not one stone will be left upon another. And then you watch the glory of the Lord in Jesus. Leave the temple complex. Move to the east. And sit down on the Mount of Olives. Is similar. Same picture happening to try to communicate this amazing message. Of he is the one who has come to bring this restoration. And they're refusing again to, to see it refusing again to take advantage of what God is trying to do through his son. So let's let's make the application then for us and why this matters to us so much. We noted in our last lesson, when sin stays, God leaves. And so when can God return and stay with his people? Now, we've, we've essentially covered this. But we have to push this idea a little bit further. The the, the base answer is God can return and stay with his people when we allow him to change us so that we have this new heart and new spirit that we just read about. God is going to call all people back to him. Here's their opportunity to return, opportunity for restored relationship when he calls the need to cast off the idols and detestable things, the need to have a new heart and a new spirit that seeks the Lord. And so that is the picture that's given. But I want us to consider this a little bit further. What is supposed to change these idolatrous hearts? What is supposed to be the catalyst to get these sins ripped out of us so that we can overcome the temptations, no longer be captured by sin? What is this big catalyst and what Ezekiel is showing and what the New Testament is showing over and over again is this work of God calling his people to him again is supposed to melt our hearts so significantly that we wouldn't want them anymore. Those, those false idolatrous detestable things. I'll, I'll explore this in the New Testament in just a minute, but let me give you just a, an example of that idea. Imagine a person who you have done wrong to every single day of your life. You have offended that person. You're supposed to be friends, but you've wronged them, harmed them, been a terrible friend to them. It's a broken relationship in every single way. But I want you to imagine, you just plug in your own mind how old you are, however you are years, (laughs) that you have done this every single day. That that person comes to you and says, even though you have done this every single day for all of these years, I want to have a relationship with you. I want to just bury all that. I want it to be water under the bridge. I just want it to be gone. And I just want to start new with you and I just want to start fresh so that we can have a clean clean slate and we can just be what we're supposed to be with one another. Can you imagine having a heart that goes, well, that's just a terrible offer. I mean, you're you're supposed to hear that and go, wow. Even after all the terrible things I've said, yeah. All the terrible things I've done, yeah. Even though I've let you down every single day, Uh, yeah, but that's okay. That's the picture that God is trying to present to us of what is being offered to us. This is what what you have the Apostle Paul trying to say to us at that time. You who were without Christ excluded from citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenant of promise. Without hope and without God. Here we are far, far from God. We have no hope. We're the scattered. We're the outcasts. We don't belong. We are without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This is what Ezekiel's talking about. The far away, those who've been scattered among the nations. I'm going to restore them. I'm going to bring them back. And God's view was not just a scattered Israel, but a scattered of the whole world was going to come back. For he is our peace who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility in his flesh. He made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations so that he might create in himself one new man from the two resulting in peace He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. Please hear that imagery, hostility. What are we trying to do with forgiveness? End the hostility, end the fracture, the broken relationship. He puts an end to the hostility. He came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near for through him, we have access in one spirit to the father. That's all amazing right there. Worthy of a pile of sermons that I don't have time for, but here's here's where I want to take you to of what we're seeing here with this temple imagery and the big answer of what God's doing to reconcile his people. So then, You are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone in him. The whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the spirit. You are being put together in a holy, as into a holy temple in the Lord, so that God can live with you. Here's Ezekiel's big question God, you said your name would always be in this place. Your name would always be attached to that temple. You would accomplish that and put your name there so that you'd always be glorified. And God comes along and says, You're not going to stay in the land anymore. You're taken off into exile. Well, God, how are you going to keep your promise? How are you going to accomplish this? And the answer of the New Testament is just staggering, is that we would be those temples. We're the place that God dwells. We're how he fulfills that promise with our being and with our actions and with our lives spread all over the globe, giving glory to God. We're that temple. And that only happens when we have that transformation and that's what's supposed to drive it is seeing what God is accomplishing in the world, seeing what God is offering to each one of us and saying, you can be a temple to the living God. You can have that life. I can use you and you will be able to accomplish that great purpose. So cast away your worldly desires and listen to God. Listen to what he is calling for you to do and allow him to remove the idolatrous heart of stone and replace it with an obedient heart of faith. Or if I'm going to sum up that big thing into this, God returns and stays with his people who cast away their worldly desires and listen to the Lord because they've been transformed by his mercy and grace. God leaves when sin stays but God returns and stays when sinful, stubborn hearts leave and a new spirit is put within them to seek him with all of our hearts. It is this desire for relationship that God could come to us and say, I know that you have sinned against me All these days, for all of these years, and yet even still, I want a relationship with you. Throw away your idols so that you can belong to me and you can be a holy temple to the Lord so that God is glorified and you fulfill your purpose that God has given to you. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father. It is an amazing visual to think about this powerful image of what you are doing in our lives and how you've called us to be a temple to you, that we would be a people, not only collectively, but as individuals who would be the place where you would reside Where people could look at us and see you because we've been so dramatically transformed by your grace and mercy. And Lord, we pray for forgiveness because we certainly, we certainly have earned and are worthy of you leaving us because of our sins. And Lord, we thank you that you desire so immensely to have a relationship with us that you would offer your son as a sacrifice to make atonement for sins so that you would come back near to us, even with our mountains and mountains of exponential sins so that you would be our God and we could be your people. Lord, we pray that you would transform our hearts to be more singularly devoted to you, transform our spirits so that our Love will always be for you, for your laws, and for your word. And I pray, Lord, that we will never allow your calling through your Son to gather us back to be your people as citizens of your kingdom, as children that belong to you as a wonderful Father, that that would never be for granted, that that would never be something that we would take lightly. And finally, Lord, I pray that you would help us to live out the mission of being the temple so that your name is glorified in all the places we go and in all the things that we do and in all the words that we say help us to be those people lord in jesus name amen let sing an invitation song and uh, what a visual that must have been to his disciples when jesus crossed that kidron valley and walked to the other side and said i'm trying to show you that i want you to come to me and how desperately he wants that that call to say don't look at the physical but come to me i'm the place of life and healing can we help you make that decision today to turn away from the physical turn away from sin and to follow your lord with all of your heart we want you to do that for this very night won't you come while we stand and while we sit?